Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And they were going to do it again. They were going to silence me again. But this time, you know, I'm a bitch and I'm in my 40s. <laughs> I will not let these motherfuckers silence me again. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And, and I'm, I'm a, a writer. writer but... <laughs> Alex has the night off, and so you will have to just suffer through me, but thankfully we have uh, an amazing guest in store, Lacey Crawford, so thanks for listening. Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Today we have Lacey Crawford, who is the author of fiction and nonfiction, including the satire Early Decision and the memoir Notes on a Silencing. Notes on a Silencing was named a New York Times Editor's Choice and Notable Book, as well as a Best Book of 2020 by Time, People, NPR, BookPage, Library Journal, and LitHub. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Narrative, Lit Hub, and Vanity Fair, and her literary journalism includes interviews and profiles of Frank Conroy, Reynolds Price, Jeffrey Wolf, and Shirley Hazard. She lives in California with her husband and three children. Welcome, Lacey. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank I'm you. so thrilled that you're here. I am so thrilled to be here. Very honored. Oh, please. Get out of here. Oh, I'm, no, I'm the, the one who's honored. It's the truth. <laughs> um, and what do you have to read to us? So I'm going to read a section from very early in my memoir, the only thing uh, that you need to know, aside from some references to a sexual assault, which will not be depicted in these pages, uh, is that it, it has just happened. Uh, and there were two of them and one of me, and this was 30 years ago. I think okay. that's all you need. The boys, however, talked. By supper, which four nights a week we attended in formal attire, suit and tie, dresses or skirts, there were eyes on me that the previous day had been unseeing. It had been a steady source of frustration for me that I was unnoticeable, in spite of the assurances of my parents and friends that I was lovely and so on. I was particularly invisible to the boys whose attentions appealed to me, athletes mostly, but also the occasional shaggy-haired poetic genius. Now, several broad-shouldered seniors were looking at me. This was from across a room crowded with students, and as people passed unknowingly between them and me, I caught shadows of respite from the heat of their eyes. The tradition after seated meal was to gather with coffee or tea in the common room outside the dining halls, a sort of proto-cocktail party training. The boys who had assaulted me were not looking at me, but their teammates stared. These boys' eyes, when I dared to meet them, were incredulous, a fire. It seemed to me the best approach was to map the threat, to determine with quick surveying glances which boys knew and which did not. Then I'd simply avoid the ones who knew. In case I was uncertain what they knew, one of them called a word in my direction. Threesome? The term hadn't occurred to me. No term had occurred to me. The event had hardened into wordless granite, silent and immobile, 
and I intended to go around it. My friends hadn't heard, but already I was being asked to admit or deny, so that standing there, saying nothing, willing my aching face to be still, I felt complicit in a lie. A space opened between my friends and me. I could all but hear the crack of ground giving way. In the days that followed, I watched the news pass from student to student, like that horror movie where the villain hops from stranger to stranger on a city street, awakening in each civil soul a demon. I understand. School days were long and exhausting, but the claustrophobic nature of boarding school, hothouse that it is, tends toward ennui. Every morning at breakfast, these people again? The nation was at war in the Persian Gulf. The Berlin Wall was coming down, but we at school knew little of anything since there was only one television in each dorm's common room and it was often broken. In any case, we had little time for television, no internet. The only cell phone was a satellite phone the size of a woman's handbag owned by the son of a scion and you had to go to his room during visiting hours to check it out. Nothing much was happening. And even if there had been something of interest to discuss on that night or any other at seated meal, how often did you have a prudish junior girl, a strawberry blonde chorister who had never had sex or much of a love life at all, just up and cruise to a senior boy's room around midnight to suck two cocks in one go? It was good stuff. I'd have been talking about it too. Especially good gossip, no matter how outlandish, contains the sense of its own inevitability. How unlikely I was to have become, of a single night, a prep school porn star. The illogic of my fall made its own case for truth. Stranger things, she just cracked. I wondered, when everyone was so quick to believe what the boys claimed, if this proved that it was my fault. There was something ugly that they had all seen in me, but I had not. I was young for my class, having entered St. Paul's School as a high school sophomore, a fourth former, aged only 14. I'd started my period a few months prior and was still surprised every time it happened. I was freckled, just barely had the braces off. I had the knees and spindle of a girl. In my very first week at the school, I had been taken up by two classmates, also fourth formers, who trailed urban sophistication, Washington and New York, and samsara perfume. They thought I was hilarious and sweet. I thought they were holograms. One of them wore Chanel suits and pearl drop earrings, the left earring white and the right one black. One of these girls came, from a, came with a boyfriend from Bermuda who was blonde and had sapphire eyes and a comical jaw like the wrong prince in a Disney movie. When we walked into seated meal, when the great studded doors opened, he set his hand on the small of her back to guide her in as though they were 40. At parents' weekend that first fall, over supper at the nicest restaurant in town, this girl's mother leaned close to my mom and said something, and my mother, pale with fright, excused herself to the bathroom. Later, mom told me she'd been asked if I was on the pill. The other mom had started her own daughter on it, she offered, so her daughter could enjoy herself. By Thanksgiving, my fabulous fuckable friend had dumped her beach prints and taken up with a senior, and new opportunities beckoned. One plan was to steal the noob book from her boyfriend's dorm. This was an actual stapled booklet of names, home addresses, and birthdays of the new students typed neatly beneath thumbnail photographs. The pejorative noob derived from new boy had not evolved after almost 20 years of coeducation. 
It took some sneaking around to get hold of the new book belonging to a popular six-form boy, but my city friends knew schedules and corridors. Giggling, we thumbed the pages. Her boyfriend and his senior chums had rated all the girls from one to 10 to two decimal points. I was happy to see that many of the girls I was coming to know and whom I liked a good deal were sevens and eights. Some assessments struck me as harsh. A curvier girl was graded ruthlessly and a few African-American girls, not at all. Other girls, shy but clear-cheeked, had pleasingly high marks. My friends were tens, natch. We found my name. Under my picture, someone had written, if a fart had a face. It's just not a great photograph, said my New York friend, and turned the page. Oh. <laughs> High school. You... <laughs> I, you know, it's bringing me back to um, how well you capture the, the childhood part of girlhood. Um, you know, this, this un uncanny thing of, of gathering clues about yourself from, from those around you, because yes. it's impossible to see yourself. And then their voices are louder than the one inside you. Um, and, and it really is so childlike and innocent and beautiful and heartbreaking and clear-eyed and sharp and brutal. And so, so good. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I just, I, my heart broke over and over and over again. And I was so angry and, and even as all that was happening, I, I could not put the book down. Um, it's such, you know, it's, it's a very hard thing. It's a terrible thing, but the way that you claim your story is, is magnificent. Um, and I want to know how you got there. How did you get to the point where you felt, I'm, I'm just asking from the point of view of writers who, who have their own stories to tell, but feel like they're beholden to the people they might hurt if they tell their story or the perceptions of them. Right. What was it like to get to the, to the place where you felt like you could write this? So I spent so many years trying, <laughs> so many yeah. years trying. I think the, the particular nature of my experience, the experience that's, that's at the heart of this memoir is that I was assaulted. It was not a very interesting or exotic assault. Two senior boys, one 15 year old girl, she knows nothing, they know a lot more. Um, there was coercion, there was a lot of fear. Um, what, what followed, however, is that they told everybody what had happened mm -hmm. and I refused to talk about it because I refused to admit it into my consciousness, but I got sick. Um, mm -hmm. I contracted um, genital herpes in the hypopharyngeal space, which is so far down in the throat, it's where the gag reflex sits, mm -hmm. uh, that you can't see it on an ordinary exam. If you, if you stick your tongue in and say, ah, you know, no one can see that far down. So I kept going to the infirmary asking for help because my throat hurt so much that at first I couldn't really sing easily. I was, I was in the choirs. I couldn't, you know, run on the soccer field. And then I couldn't eat and I was losing weight and I had a fever. And my boarding school, long story short, sent me to an external physician who diagnosed me and told the school what I had. And the school neglected to tell me or my family or my doctors for oh the remainder God. of that year. But what they did do uh, is tell my classmates. So when several months later, I finally told my mother, I disclosed to my mother the assault, which was statutory given the ages and the circumstances of the, the room that night, what went on that night, um, this is October of 1990. 
when I disclosed to my mom and she called the school, uh, the school realized, I now know that they were on the ropes. And the mm -hmm. reason they were on the ropes is because they had medical records of a 15 year old girl showing up in the infirmary, something like seven days after I had told them the assault had taken place with a clinical evidence of a forcible penetrative assault, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they had to figure out what to do about this. So one of the things they did is they sat down a bunch of the seniors on the lacrosse team, which happened to include the two men who had assaulted me, and told them that if any of them had ever been intimate with Lacey Crawford, they ought to go to the infirmary to get checked out with herpes, for herpes. Now, I did not yet know uh, that this is what was wrong with my throat. I, I thought I was being punished by God. But the result of this was that in the very small world that was my world, when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, which was this so-called elite, you know, boarding school in Concord, New Hampshire, that's a feeder for the Ivy League and a feeder for all of the jobs that, you know, hunger after kids coming out of the Ivy League and the entire uh, sort of horrid meritocratic project that, you know, we're trying so much to be thoughtful about. Um, that whole world knew that I was sick and uh, also that I had somehow gotten myself sick. And this was a suggestion of promiscuity and of course, heaps and heaps of shame. So the story was never really mine to tell. Um, the school went ahead and took care of that for me. They then, uh, when the Concord New Hampshire police wanted to press charges against the two boys who had assaulted me, who had by then graduated, the school threatened that if they put me on the stand, they would say that I was a drug dealer that I was promiscuous, that I flouted the rules of campus. None of these things were true. Um, and so I said, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Never mind. You know, yeah. I, I, mm -hmm. I wish you not to go ahead with charges. And miraculously, the school welcomed me back for my senior year. Uh, and that was that. So this followed me. This followed me to college. It followed me after college. There were, it sounds so silly because the world is so huge, but in certain ways for me, it was not. And there were, I think maybe 12 or 13 classmates of mine in my class in college who had gone to my same boarding school. There were maybe 50 kids across the four years of college who had been there who knew something of this. And they told people and they told people even after college, this is something that followed me for years. Mm -hmm. um, um, I was the girl with herpes. I was the girl who had had this horrible, shameful thing happen. So for a long time, I tried to tell it. I tried... Um, I started a PhD program in English literature and I worked on trauma theory and rape testimony. So I was very interested in how particularly children who are victimized in ways that they cannot find language for will use metaphor or make up stories. They'll mm -hmm. tell fairy tales, they'll mm -hmm. use puppets. Uh, and all of these things count as testimony as fact in a court of law, which is a really remarkable thing, actually, if you think about it. Um, I got my master's, I wrote my master's in that, and I had a kind of breakdown and quit that. And then I decided to get closer to the bone and write my story as a, a thinly veiled, you know, autobiographical novel about mm -hmm. what had happened at this boarding school. And I spent two years doing that. Um, and an editor who believed in the book sent it to Binky Urban, who was a 
very prominent um, senior agent with ICM then and now and for the last hundred years, as far as I can tell, she's Amanda <laughs> called Binky Urban. I now know that it's remarkable that that even happened. But it, when I was 25, all I knew was that Binky Urban read it over Memorial Day weekend and she called me on Tuesday and said, yeah, there's some good characterization, some nice detail on these pages. It's an immersive world. But, you know, I just, um, date rape stories are a dime a dozen. Oh, oh my God. She said date rape? Date rape stories are a dime oh a dozen. So it's it's not a date rape story. I wasn't on a date. And just, right. you know, P- PSA, if you start getting raped, your date's over, uh, regardless right. of how it's exactly. started. Right? But, um, but I... I was uh, brittle enough that I thought, well, I guess that means I'm not good enough. I can't tell this. There's no world for this. So I quit. I quit writing altogether. Mm. I was like, I'm done. And, uh, and I moved into nonprofit work and communications and strategy. And I was trying to save the world working with a non-governmental organization in London. And I was trying to save the world working with, um, all sorts of charities that were involved in communications. I kept circling the issue of telling the truth. How do you mm-hmm. tell the truth and get someone to hear you mm-hmm. if you are trying to report on illegal logging or um, the illegal poaching of rhinos or you know all of these things I was throwing my heart into and I wasn't getting any closer uh, to feeling like I was doing the work, the writing that is the only thing I had ever wanted to do. But, um, but clearly there was no way to tell this story. And happily I grew up and had a lot of therapy and I met a really wonderful man who became my husband and and we had children and the last thing I was ever going to do was tell this story because Mm -hmm. it happened before Google no one need ever know you know that any of this happened to me certainly not my boys my husband knows of course it's one of the Mm -hmm. first things we talked about but beyond that it's done I moved to Southern California. Nobody sends their kids to boarding school here. They asked me what I did wrong. <laughs> My parents shipped me away. You know, it's, it's a wonderful change everywhere. And then in 2017, the state of New Hampshire opened a formal investigation into my boarding school, into St. Paul's School. And, uh, and they were looking into whether the school had covered up assaults on campus had they failed to report them had they uh, obstructed justice had they engaged in witness tampering and I thought oh uh uh-huh and I sent an email to the Department of Justice website in state of New Hampshire that was on the press release and I said I have this email I said I was assaulted when I was 15 by two 18 year olds in the school threatened to expel me and failed to report and and etc etc And I got a kind of form response, you know, thanks so much, Miss Crawford, you know, someone will consider your response. And then like an hour later, a a phone call came in um, from area code 603. And, uh, and it was a detective with this gravel voice. And he said, we pulled your criminal case file from 1990-91. And we wonder if you would be willing to speak with, with investigators. Oh my God. And Time collapsed, Mm -hmm. time collapsed. And I had my littlest boy was two and he was holding on to my knee. I was on the phone in the front hall. I had run out of the kitchen to take the call, right? And he'd followed me and was hanging on to me like a barnacle, right? So (laughs) I'm dragging my right leg along the floor because Theodore is riding it. Mummy, mummy, mummy. And and I, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not a 15, 16 year old girl anymore. And they silenced me once and I don't have to let them do it again. So I joined the state investigation very privately. Only my husband knew 
The detectives also interviewed my parents who were willing to go on record. They talked to a couple former faculty members. Somehow the school found out and I heard from their lawyers that they wanted to hear from me right away. And I thought, yeah, that's not gonna happen. Forwarded that to the police. This is a very long-winded answer. Stay no, with me. I'm please, I am with you. I am with you. <laughs> the, the, the police drove up to campus uh, on, uh, in August of, nine, of, of 2017. This was 25 years after I had graduated and requested my student file, which was you know, 25 years old and happened to be sitting on the headmaster's desk. Hmm. Wonder, wonder mm-hmm. why. Um, and, uh, and inside my file, they found documented evidence of everything I've just told you and worse, far worse, the, the school's lawyer plotting the architecture of my silencing that I will, they, they should not permit me to return for my senior year unless my parents drop the charge of a cover up, all of these things. And uh, the police broke protocol to let me know that, that these documents existed in my file, that they had taken photographs of all of them, that they would be submitting them to the state investigation. When they did that, they were immediately severed from my case. And the state of New Hampshire told them that under no circumstances would they admit any information about me or my assault or my time at St. Paul's into their formal investigation. So they called me back the police. It was like a crime novel. I was like, Grisham is scripting what is happening in my life right now. There's a lieutenant pounding the table, you know, saying in 25 years, I've never been treated this way. You know, you would have thought we were the perps up there. Uh, and I was floored and, um, and they were going to do it again. They were going to silence me again, but this time, you know, I'm a bitch and I'm in my forties <laughs> and I'm, and I'm married and I'm oh. perimenopausal and I have a <laughs> A two-year-old, a two-year-old, right? So what do you do? Do you bring a lawsuit? I talked to a lawyer. They were pretty excited about that. But then, you know, you're handing it all over to other people to fight it out for you, right? That's a system. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it works. A lot of the time it doesn't. I could go to the media. So I, I definitely had a few conversations with some folks at Spotlight and they were like, we're ready to go. But you know what? I'm a writer. I'm a writer, but right. I don't want to write this shit, you know, but I'm a writer. So, so then the, the thinking is, if I tell this, I can tell it in my own voice. I can tell it exactly the way I remember it. Nobody can tell me that's wrong because the police have just told me that everything I remember is true. Mm -hmm. So I got insanely lucky. I mean, Mm -hmm. imagine if the worst thing the most deceptive, destructive, shameful, yucky thing that ever happened to a person in middle school or high school, if someone called you and said, you know, we have the file on that and you were actually awesome and right mm-hmm. and everyone else was wrong. And it's lied. the dream. It's the dream. It's the dream. It's it the is. dream. So I thought if I can tell this in a compulsive enough way, I can put it into the world. Mm-hmm. Now that's a whole other kettle of fish, right? Because the market is what the market is. But absolutely, that was the urgency is I will not let these motherfuckers silence me again. Yeah. And, you know, it makes me think I'm, I'm reading um, on your recommendation. I'm reading What Happened to Paula yes. um, by Catherine Dykstra. And um, she talks about the passive language of rape and sexual yes. assault against women. Yes. Um, got herself raped or got herself beat yes. up or got herself killed. And you, at, you know, when you were just talking, you said, I got myself sick or they said, I got myself yes. sick. Yes. And it, it made me think of the structure of your book because you very, like immediately you describe what happened to you in very clear language. 
And then you return to it again and again. And each time there's a new layer, but it's very direct what happened and what, you know, and then the herpes and how sick you were Mm -hmm. and and you tell it and you retell it. And it almost felt like you were, you were taking that passive language and, you know, like turning it into, no, this is what happened. It it is a a constant process of agency, right? So, I mean, I, I th- first of all, I wanted to say what had happened very simply. That was the first page I wrote. I, I, I challenged myself to simply say what was true. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote that at the top of a page. Why not just say what is true? I typed mm-hmm. that question mark, mm-hmm. space, space. And then I started writing. And, and, and what is on the page is almost exactly uh, what I wrote. It was as simple and as straightforward as I could make it. Because the truth is, my assault is not, it's not very interesting. It, it is a violation. It is grotesque. It got me sick. There are horrible things. Assaults are horrible. It's a transfer of violence and anger and shame and all of these things, which I have come to understand. But what almost buried me, truly, especially by my mid to late 20s, what almost buried me was that I could not say it, that Mm. everyone else got to say what had been done to me and therefore who I was. And, And when you try to take that back and people don't believe you, or don't know how to believe you or, 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 or lie or worse, right? Or, or just want you as, to get over it. Or right? just want you to get over it. Mm-hmm. it that will sink you. That mm-hmm. will sink you. So, so my experience of it, just me, is the violation was awful, but I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I've got doctors, I'm, I've got a lot of privilege, I've got a, a, an intact family that's doing everything it can to support me, um, I'm all right, you know, but that everybody then lied and denied it so that it followed me, but in a way that it was its outline and not the truth, that was the thing I couldn't outrun. And interestingly, I believe now that I couldn't write anything else mm-hmm. until I understood that really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this vacuum almost, you know, that, that needed to be filled. So, so I am very interested in what happens after, immediately after the violation, because it is a dehumanizing moment for the woman or man who is victimized. And if that dehumanization is repeated in the way other people react to the, to the witness, that's, that's the thing that is most unsettling and frightening for me. And that's where I spent my time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were told again and again that this wasn't a story or it wasn't true, or you didn't have a voice. Well, and that, that, the, and that the story is so common that, that it isn't worth telling. Right. Right. Which right. Is, so we'll just sit with that for a moment. Something happens so much and is so awful that it becomes banal. Right. And I I mean, I think in the last couple of years, the nation has been reckoning with this kind of nascent resurgence of social justice movements in some places and others where we're starting to to identify that as a as a huge pile of bullshit. Mm -hmm. Right. That just because Mm -hmm. it happens all the time doesn't mean we turn away. It means that's exactly where you look. That is right where you start. Right. So what ended up happening, though, is I remembered Binky's words. I don't regret them they did almost kill me for a while there but mm-hmm. i but i remembered 
that date rape stories are dime a dozen. And what that means is that if you're going to find a way to put a book into the world, you have a real problem of craft in terms of figuring out what it is you're going to say, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. and, and that allowed me to neatly sidestep what might've been sort of psychological or emotional quicksand mm -hmm. because I didn't have time. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't have time to think about that stuff, you know, like what will it do, you know, to, to put this, I mean, obviously I thought about that to put this into the world, but the question really was, what will it do to me if I don't, mm -hmm. you know, what mm -hmm. will it do if I don't? And, um, and now here it is. And uh, some people in my life uh, have been remarkably supportive. I have been inundated with disclosures from people who were assaulted at my boarding school and everywhere else on the planet. Um, I have found a remarkable community of people who are working toward gender safety. Um, mm -hmm. I have also been pretty thoroughly turfed to outer space mm -hmm. by uh, members of my family and certain friends. And that's mm -hmm. okay. That's okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you if the if I don't want to call it a trade off. It's not a trade off. If if you know the the process of writing it and then sort of what has come since then since since publication makes it oh, I don't even want to say worthy because of course it is, but, but I guess I'm asking you like what has it felt like to receive that kind of feedback? What happened next? Like good or bad? <laughs> you know, like th this is a very personal. Um, you know, such yes. a amazing book to read. Um, but then you had to deal with, you know, all kinds of reactions to it. I got lucky again on the sort of criminal <laughs> justice front in that the documents that were read, the, the, the police read from in just bits and pieces to me back in 2017, I now have those in my possession. And I have other documents that I didn't even know existed. I have my criminal case file, which took three and a half years and a private attorney to get my mm -hmm. hands on. That is it's full of redactions. It's 500 mm -hmm. pages long. But in it, I have the school's lawyer, who is still a very prominent attorney in the state of New Hampshire, widely decorated, um, is a partner with Oren Reno, uh, this highly esteemed firm. I have him communicate communicating to Concord police the lie that I went to the infirmary, not with herpes, but with canker sores. Oh he actually God. told Concord police that I had canker sores. So <sighs> I was a 16 year old girl, 15 at that point, who couldn't eat, who couldn't eat because of what was in her throat and nowhere else, by the way. Uh, and here's an attorney who's never met me, who can't spell my name right, you know, in his documents to the school, telling the police that no, actually, uh, it was canker sores. And I don't know if the school lied to him and he bought it or if he was in on that. Um, I've been told he's a defamation expert and I'd best be careful what oh, allegations please. I make. Oh my God. Oh, please is right. Because oh. I have these documents now in my hot little pissed off hands. And, and in your paperback, right? And in my paperback. Yes, and yes. So, so there was an almost immediate vindication on that front. There was uh, this outpouring of disclosures, as I've told you right now, 59 individuals <gasps> from my boarding school alone have told me about being assaulted or abused on campus. And they've told me about, I can't even count how many others. Um, so that, that has been 
both remarkably painful and remarkable in that a lot of people recognize exactly the place I described and, mm -hmm. and have mm -hmm. been sitting with great pain for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I've had people who whose work I have admired in a lot of fields, particularly writers, but also filmmakers and um, musicians and artists and philosophers and you know, scientists who have contacted me and said, you have helped me to understand something um, either about myself or about my parenting or about something. And that is restorative in a way I never imagined. That, that, is, um, that is remarkable. There is also a, a sort of subgenre of people who I knew, but not well, who write to me and say very kindly, you know, with good intentions, I read your book, couldn't put it down, you know, um, I'm so sorry all that happened to you, you're very brave. I am being a bit dismissive of these things. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a slightly witchy, but also slightly not. Because if you call me brave, mm -hmm. you have to tell me what the danger is. What is the danger of telling the truth about mm -hmm. how I was victimized? If I were carjacked, could I tell you that? Mm -hmm. Is it brave oh to tell God. you if I would? No, it's not. It's what you would expect, right? So right. I, I didn't do it. <laughs> you know, I didn't do it. I was a girl who did the best she could. And I, I have a sense that there are a lot of us who were girls doing the best they could. So uh, whether we were fe female or male, there were a lot of us who were girls who were doing the best we could, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so this subgenre is, uh, you know, thank you so much. You're so brave. I'm so sorry that happened to you. And wow, I'm so glad I know this because yes, I did think you were a disease-ridden slut. <laughs> oh my like, God. I, I heard that story. I knew all about, I knew that, you know, I heard this the summer I was 16. I heard this when I arrived in college. I heard this about you afterward, you know, when you were living in San Francisco. And, and they are seeking to validate uh, what I knew about how this story went out ahead of me in ways <sighs> that really cast a shadow over my early adulthood. And I find it impossible to respond um, to these emails because they usually end something like hugs. Oh my God. Absolve me, comma. Well, that's right. I mean, that's right. It's like, you know, you could have just stopped it, couldn't put it down, right. hugs, right? Like, right. You know, so, like, I, I mean, I, I've learned a lot about stupid shit I know I have said to other people now yeah. when they've, you know, shared things with me. I have been fascinated by the number of women who have said, I thought boys were the ones who were at fault. And obviously boys are the agents of these assaults more often than not, not always, but who recognize that girls do a great job upholding that system and do a great job uh, beating up on victims. And a lot of women said, you know, there was a girl, one, one woman who was, she was a librarian in her seventies. And she said, you know, there was a girl there was a girl in my class in high school and she was the sweetest girl and we did XYZ together. And then, you know, when we were juniors, she just started sleeping around, said this woman, she used language that was somewhat arcane. You know, she, mm -hmm. she you know, she gave it up. She didn't keep her legs to, you know, she, all of us. And, and I, and I know now actually that something happened. I know that something happened to her. And, mm -hmm. and that has been something that I find very useful. The thought that, um, people haven't seen each other clearly because they have been told to look away from a moment of violence and they have done so. And we walk around hoping it, hoping no one singles us out for anything. Um, and especially girls, I, you know, like I, our appearance, everything about us, our weight, our, you know, our complexion, everything. And we just hope 
that that we're either lauded for whatever or we just fly under the radar and so when someone else takes that heat where we're happy to have them do it yes of exactly. course yeah. especially if their behavior does appear to us to be deviant in right. some way you know oh, that diverges, you know from what we've been taught then yeah that's why that happened to her uh and i'm really glad it's happening to her you know well i was i was the her you know, I, I was the her. And what I have done is essentially rolled that boulder on over like three feet to the right here. Mm -hmm. So that story's over here and it's not me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and that feels really great. That feels really good. I was, that brings me to my next question because um, T. Kira Madden talks about the difference between catharsis yes. and memoir yes. and that a lot of her catharsis was done in therapy. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about that difference with this memoir. Yeah. I, I did not feel that I was working out something emotional or uncovering something buried from myself or you know, knitting up something that had come unraveled in the process of writing this. Mm -hmm. I felt that I was um, turning inside out a lie that had been put into the world and had shaped my life for a very long time. So I, I personally had my life saved by a therapist I met when I was 30. I was, uh, I had through my 20s found myself in a, I now recognize really quite emotionally abusive relationship and um and i was alone a lot of the time and i was very seriously depressed and i i had got to the point where clinicians were wondering if if maybe putting me inpatient was the only way forward mm -hmm. and what nobody had uh thought about is that there had been a trauma or for me a sequence of traumas right there was the initial violation which is what it is and then there was an entire community turning on me and determining that I was the one at fault for that and actually lying to mm -hmm. police to my parents to me keeping mm -hmm. me sick everything that they had done um, I couldn't bear the weight of that anymore but I occupied so thoroughly the girl they had created to whom nothing good would happen for whom nothing good who, who was helpless really I had, I thought I, you know, look, I tried, you know, I tried graduate school, I, I was in a PhD program, I dropped out, I, I tried writing it in a fictionalized form. And, you know, Binky Urban read it, for God's sake. I mean, I should have been <laughs> thrilled just with that, right? That, that's amazing. Like, who opens that door, right? That door was open for me. And, and I can't go through it. I couldn't walk through it, right? So the experience I had was you've been given everything. Mm -hmm. And you can't get out from under this. So mm -hmm. by the time I turned 30, I had pretty much decided that once I figured out who would take my dog, I would um, just finish things up because mm -hmm. my life hadn't happened. Um, it hadn't happened. And that was in spite of a lot that had been given to me that I had failed to make use of. And my friends were finishing up their degrees and starting careers. And they were doctors and lawyers and artists and political organizers and they were getting married and having their first children. And I was uh, living alone um, in a country where I was not a citizen and um, in an abusive relationship and trying to figure out how to die. So I, I did begin, um, a, I mean, it was a, he's a, a psychoanalyst, like an actual, like, you know, freaky Freud kind of psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. It was a last 
Hail Mary attempt to learn how to live. And uh, for a while, he let me pay whatever I could afford. I was tutoring That's amazing. high school kids on their college essays. Uh, I was living in London and working with all the kids who wanted to go to the States. So I, I took the tube everywhere and I worked with all these rich kids. And then I, I took their money and I handed it to this analyst up in Hampstead. Uh, and he gathered me up and sort of taught me how to live. And had none of that work happened, not only would I not be here, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to write. There, there's no way that I would have had the position to understand, um, I think, how to own, how to find the authority, really, mm -hmm. to, to tell it, mm -hmm. how to find the authority to tell it. So for me, it was even less of a catharsis because I had been in so much pain for so long. I don't think there was an emotion I needed to access. I think I needed to start to understand that I was a reliable witness to my own experience um, and that what I believed and felt was a form of fact, not always correct, mm -hmm, right? But, mm -hmm. but a form of truth that needed to be taken into consideration mm -hmm. rather than a thing to be discarded. And I don't think it's possible to write effectively, certainly not in nonfiction mode, if you don't grant yourself from some position that authority. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's what stops so many people from writing what they want to write. Um, you know, that, that disclosure that you actually, that you just said that, you know, this is my fact, this is my, my truth, you know, and, and just accepting that, you know, th that your memory is yours and, and it, it deserves, you know, it deserves to be told. It, and it will be imperfect and right. it will, it will piss people off. I, I mean, I think if you're not irritating somebody with your memoir, I'm not really sure, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just impossible that there are that many different subjectivities and that they would all be aligned. Right. It, it, it simply doesn't work that way. Right. And a lot of what's interesting is when it, it's almost aligned, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, there's great pain in my book and in my telling in my inability to come back together with my parents in many mm -hmm. ways after what happened at St. Paul's. Um, and uh, I tried to express that in a way that I thought offered grace and also privacy. Um, my parents were not happy with the way they were depicted or our family was depicted in this book. And um, and that's not something that I can fix, but I also have gone back through so carefully and of course with so many lawyers so many lawyers you know are you sure you want to say this are you sure you want to say that who's this person in real life what's this person's name uh and i don't i don't regret that and um and i you know i don't know if there's something cold about that in me um you know but but this was a thing that was done to me and i waited 30 years to tell it and you know I thought you, it was time. you grant them such grace that, um, but I, you know, the truth is a very hard thing. And, and um, I mean, I, I think you give them lots of understanding and lots of grace. Like I said, you, you, you know, you, you tell the whole truth. Um, you know, there's, there's beautiful moments where they're there for you, you know, immediately. For sure. Um, yes. But, you know, there's failure too. And, and, you know, I, I'm just sorry that, that it ended, you know, that it's where it is right now, but, you know, I thought you were more than fair and, and, and really painted them as human beings. Um, you know, so that's just my perspective. Well, I'm not sure what else they could have done. 
30 years ago, you know, I mean, I, it was a different world. It was so long before Me Too that uh, everything I just read about the girls being rated to two decimal points, I, it didn't occur to me or to anyone that that was not an okay thing to do. Oh, right? they did that it was, in my school, you know, I mean, and yes, and you wanted, you wanted to be on that oh, list. Desperately, you know? yes. desperately. You had yes. no idea that it was weird or wrong. No, no. And and we weren't doing the same thing. I mean, mm. we never, we never rated the boys. Mm -hmm. I, I don't remember ever sitting down and thinking about them with any mm -hmm. kind of intellectual. I don't know that they warranted that at that point. Because, you know, <laughs> some of them might have. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, my what the school managed to do was to seed a kind of shame that was so public and so incendiary, particularly the lever of my being sick, right? There mm -hmm. is, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. enter Susan Sontag here, but there's a kind of morality that is associated certainly with a sexually transmitted disease. And even though it is literally in a spot that you cannot see unless you have like, you know, have done an ear, nose and throat <laughs> residency, like, you know, it's it right. still right. is... Uh, talk about a scarlet letter. Um, and I think my parents would have preferred never to have those things put into the world um, the, in the way that I have. I diverge from them there because first of all, something like between 40 and 70% of American adults who are white, it's lesser in other populations, but who are white have been exposed to the herpes virus. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, this is none of this is None of this is particularly new or exotic, right? Mm -hmm, I just mm -hmm. got lucky because I have the documents. That's mm -hmm, all. Mm -hmm. You also wrote a novel called Early Decision. It came out in 2013. I did. Um, can you talk about that? Can you talk about <laughs> writing memoir versus fiction? And I know that was a long time ago. It was like worse than... <laughs> writing this this everyone's like that wasn't the memoir hard I'm like that was easy I had a hard time with that this so here's a thing that happened that I can say now because I've had a different kind of experience mm -hmm. right so I've learned enough to differentiate all I have ever wanted to do is write it was mm -hmm. abundantly clear to me graduating uh, from college that I was not very good at it, that I was a very good reader, but that I, I could not create fiction um, that was anywhere near what it needed to look like. And Akhil Sharma was two years older than I was in college. Jonathan Safran Foer was three years younger. Oh my goodness. Um, yes. I mean, I, I was, you know, I had my nose pressed up against the glass of these remarkable <laughs> remarkable talents and I I was writing these shitty short stories about like bad boyfriends <laughs> and like um and it was really and I, I I just didn't understand how sentences worked I just I loved them I I held them I fed off of them right but I didn't understand how they did what they do in a very simple way so I tried as I told you to write my you know thinly veiled autobiographical novel about my not date date rape date rape and that went nowhere and I quit writing altogether except that I then started writing in a business way um I was doing all these communications for various nonprofits which led to policy papers and advocacy advocacy positions and then some kind of journalism type stuff and then I I, I was slowly finding a way into putting sentences together one after the other that wasn't about trying to be talented mm -hmm. you know or trying to be good it was mm -hmm. about just getting shit out there so mm -hmm. that people would would react so so the people would see that something needs to happen. There was always a, a sense of kind of 
I do actually want you to think about things. You know, I, I'm, I'm not just taking you on a ride. I, I'm not just an entertainer. I wish I were, I wish I were, but I'm not. And, um, and the way I supported myself through, through a lot of these years, as I said, as I worked with high school seniors on their college essays, and I did this before there was an industry that did such a thing, we wrote most of them by hand. I went through draft after draft with these kids. And what I was doing, of course, was trying to heal myself, the girl who mm -hmm. couldn't actually find her voice, not that mm -hmm. I understood any of this, but I would sit with these kids. And the thing is that almost without fail, a 17 year old speaking in his or her own voice is amazing. I like amazing, like let them all into Iowa, incredible. Like what mm -hmm. they sound like on the page, like just brilliant, completely idiosyncratic. Um, fantastic stuff. And, and I would work with them until they were able to say the thing that actually mattered to them. Um, and when they did, interestingly, they would kind of think about their classes differently and maybe choose different books and maybe they would drop a class or take something else and things started to line up and lo and behold, they knew better colleges for them and mm. they applied well and they ended up getting in. And so I found myself as a kind of mentor to kids at a time when my life was like so in the crap or you couldn't mm. And I was like living on microwave popcorn and frozen Snickers bars and I had like, I like couldn't, you know, and I didn't know how to take care of myself at all. Right. I was taking care of these kids. And I did that for years because once freelance, always freelance, I couldn't say no, you know, mm -hmm. to work. And so uh, people would call and say, I heard you did this and would you do it for us? And, um, and so I would say, okay, okay. You know, because I knew how to do it and I believed I was good at it and it was a nice way to make money. So I did that through my 20s into my 30s and I only stopped I had other jobs like big corporate jobs by that point but I, I still did it I only stopped when my first child was born at the very end of 2009 mm. I was living in San Francisco then my husband traveled every week for work I was by oh my myself God. with a baby I had given up the corporate job because of the travel and I was like okay now what do I do yeah um and so I I was trying to get my kid into preschool in San Francisco <laughs> remains like the hardest thing I've ever tried. I, I mean, failed. even I know I, that <laughs> like, I failed. I couldn't, I, I couldn't do it. Um, and I was, and I had to write a series of essays for the Russian Hill school. And, and the, the, one of the essays was, you know, based on what you know about your developing child's character and your family's values, like how does the Russian Hill school, you know, best represent the, you know, the first education steps. And I looked over and Simon, my son, who was like four months old, was on like one of those little muslin blankies, like in a spot <laughs> on the floor, sucking on his feet, right? I was like, and, and I was like, I got this. Like I can, I'm gonna write an amazing essay. I'm gonna write, we got, we got waitlisted at Russian Hills. Okay, it wasn't that good. But, but I, and I thought, you know, I've stepped through the looking glass. I am, I'm now those, parents. I, I'm, I, you know, I had been shit talking these parents quietly in my head all these years for being crazy enough to hire me to work with their kids, which is bananas. Their kids were awesome. But now I was one of those parents. And so I started writing a novel that centered on these essays that kids wrote. And, um, and I knew what a shitty first draft from a 16 year old sounds like when they've written it because they think their English teacher wants to hear mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. And I knew how that stuff kind of sloughs off and they end up writing about the thing they really want, which usually happened when they would send me an email, you know, so they would have, they would have given me some totally anodyne bullshit piece about caring about recycling. <laughs> 
Um, and then they would email me about, you know, something that just moved them beyond. Um, they had taken a photograph of a thing and now they were whatever, you know, working with a photograph and had discovered what the thing was and had discovered who the thing belonged to and on and on and on. And so I would say, this is your essay. So go write this, you know, and then get back to me. And so I wrote this very fast satire. And what I wanted was to speak to all those moms. Like, what could I write that would be mm -hmm. fast enough and funny enough that these moms would actually go there, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're actually gonna read it. And um, and also, by the way, I did know a few things about getting your kids into school. I did, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that they, that they still obtain, but I, I still hold that there's value in learning to write well. So anyway, I wrote this these like 60 pages or something and I, I gave them to my husband once. I was like, I like all work and no play it makes Lacey like crazy. And, and my husband was like, actually, I think he should finish this. I think we should hire some help. And we hired this woman called Rosanna, this Portuguese woman who strapped my baby on her chest and took him to watch the Muni trains. And I finished writing this book and I sent it to a friend of mine in London who is a, a very well-published writer. And he was like, oh, I think this is great. I'm gonna give it to my agent. And he gave oh it to his God. agent and his agent gave it to the American you know, cohort agent, right? The sort of, um, and that agent emailed me and was like, when can we get on the phone? I can't wait to sell this. Oh my God. And I thought, oh my God, oh my God, I did it. Oh my God, I did it when I wasn't trying to do it. Like, but wait, but this isn't my book. Like, this isn't the book. This isn't me like as writer book. Like this is, this is like a thing. This is like an, another thing. This is, and this is in part because I, I was not a very broad reader and I didn't understand how many different markets there are, you know, right. and, and, and what sorts of books move people in much greater numbers than to be honest, the literature fiction that most often moves me right <laughs> so um I knew nothing uh, and absolutely nothing and um and my book went out on submission after a few changes my second child was like three weeks old and um and it sold very fast and it sold to an editor who wanted it to be the nanny diaries and oh look if goodness. I could write the nanny diaries I would trust me right um, absolutely I, I didn't um I wrote a mean snarky, you know, wry little book about what we're doing to adolescents and uh, with this college admissions thing. And six months after it sold, I got my editor's letter and most of the pages were untouched on my manuscript, but she had said, we need a happy ending. Oh God. Yeah. Oh no. What did you do? What did I do? I, I mean, I cried, I wailed, mm -hmm. I talked to my agent. She tried to explain that that would change not just tone, but genre in a way, right? Yeah, that that way, totally. like, right, it makes it a different book. But, um, but we couldn't, you know, cancel the contract and go back out with it. You, you strike once, right? I, yeah. I, I mean, it had been, you know, and, and there was, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this, so we'll have to think about this together, but when it was announced in Publishers Marketplace, which yeah. I didn't know existed, by the way, until people started <laughs> emailing me about it, right? the number associated with the sale was not accurate mm. by many, many multiples, not accurate. Weird. Weird, right? So the suggestion was that I had been paid something close to a million dollars for my God. first novel, which could not even be more bananas far from the truth. Like nobody is that stupid. It was not that book. <laughs> and I didn't know this because, you know, there are these, there are these terms, right? right. These, you know, very careful. Very deals. nice deal. Very, I, you know, I got yes. like a, like freaking hot deal or whatever right. it was. It was like, yeah. you know, and, um, and, and it wasn't. And so there was this expectation 
of something that now six months later was crumbling in mm. my hands because she wanted a happy ending and I I didn't want it to have a happy ending because I don't think it has a happy ending actually. Um, and I'm much more interested in things that sometimes don't, right? So um, I gave it a happy ending and it went out into the world and I was very conflicted about mm -hmm both the good things that happened because they felt to me unearned, even though I was staggeringly lucky to get them. And I was very hurt by the, how do I describe it? Entities that ignored it as a book because uh -huh. those are people I have read and looked to all my life. And I did not understand how broad the world of books and marketing and, and readership is. I, I I remember going on to Goodreads because I had been told to open a Goodreads account. And I did this before I had turned in the final manuscript and my book already had a shitty review. <laughs> yes. I, why do people do that? They do it every time. I hadn't even turned it. Yes. So I, I, like I got in my head that someone at William Morrow hated my book and had gone on Goodreads. Oh my God. <laughs> which, which, like, I mean, paranoia is not a good space, you know, for a debut writer. So, so I, um, I quit writing again, you know, really after that book came out. And then I decided, no, no, you're going to write a real book. You're going to write a real book. And I was busy working on my quote, real book end quote, when the state of New Hampshire opened its investigation. Mm. So the memoir was a bit of a detour. And mm -hmm. um, now I don't know what the hell is going on. That was gonna, I was just going to ask you, what are you, what are you working on now? I, I hate that question. And I, and I feel assaulted when someone asks me it, but I'm asking you. Because I, mean, <laughs> I love like, your writing. It is like asking if if one is trying to get pregnant. I, it I mean, is. It, it, it really, really is. Like, are you having sex? And yes. are you availing yourself of various fertility? Are you making right your now? life worthwhile yes, right now? Exactly. Like, do, is there anything that you're going to offer? Um, <laughs> I will say that fairly recently, something new has come into my head that will <gasps> not leave me alone. Oh, that's such a good sign. Whether it becomes the sort of project that goes out into the world or not, I don't even like to consider okay. thinking about. Okay. Um, but I can say that I'm going to finish it because, mm. uh, because it feels really great to work on something. Yes. Really oh, that is, I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. What do you do to, to get yourself working? Is it a daily thing? What, you know, what is your process? Right. So COVID summer, three kids. Oh right? God. Yes. I'm very familiar. I, I know I, the, what is erratic about <laughs> it is sometimes useful. Mm -hmm. I think, especially at the beginning of a project, when you're still working out point of view, when things mm -hmm. are kind of collapsed, you know, you mm -hmm. haven't quite determined tone. I think it's possible to get way up in your own shit day after day because you're trying so hard and sometimes not being able to work for four days because somebody has a sinus infection and somebody else sprained his ankle at camp or whatever right. is, is great mm -hmm. uh, because on day three, you're like, oh, do you know what has to happen? What has to happen is, and then, yes. and then you actually know, right? You, yes. you do, you do pull up and you're back up at 20, 30,000 feet again. And there it is. And oh my God, you're still there. You're still there. You know, it's like in the morning when you go into the crib and the baby slept through the night, you're like, wait, you're okay. You know, so I, I, I feel like my, my, my little nascent project is sleeping through the night, which is really great. And, um, 
and I, when I have the time and I, th- I think 90 minutes is like really the sweet spot beneath mm-hmm. which it's hard to do much other than fiddle. Mm-hmm. Um, I start by reading something that is immersive and beguiling. Mm-hmm. And then I have what I think of as a Wiley E. Coyote method of <laughs> going through those pages and then quickly closing it and getting my laptop open as fast as I can and writing myself (laughs) without looking down and you can make it yes you can make it like a whole paragraph that way it works (gasps) I I mean it really does it really like just don't look down keep running it does not matter that there is no longer like the beautiful cliff path of whatever you've just been reading you can do it that's a genius I had a professor who wrote with her eyes closed well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it, it's, I just, I try to stay, I'm trying to borrow from someone else's confidence, really. Mm. That, that's what I think it is. And, mm-hmm. and so when I read a book that is assured, it doesn't matter what kind of book it is. It truly doesn't. But if it is assured, if you know you are in good hands, if I can borrow that you know, into whatever I'm exploring, then it gives me the courage I think I need to go forward. Now, again, whether that's going to work, I have no idea. You might never, like, I, I might never publish another word. I, I don't know. Um, and I'm grateful to have had different experiences in the marketplace mm-hmm. so that I've learned how very slim the overlap can be between achievement and success. Mm-hmm. I, I have seen how many remarkable books don't sell or sell and, and are quiet, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and then obviously, uh, sometimes there are books that I think aren't so extraordinary that, um, you know, you can't get away from. So mm-hmm. that's really freeing and useful. And, um, and I'm grateful for that. So I read, I read before I write, and then I write until somebody makes me stop, which always happens. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wake up, I've, I've been waking up at five and then inevitably someone wakes up you know, by five forty-five or six. And so I can kind of hear them stirring. And so my fingers move faster and faster and faster. <laughs> well, so I, you know, I heard you say this on a, on a previous episode mm-hmm. and, um, and you, you said that you had been a runner, but you don't run anymore. Is that right? No, I don't. And you don't miss it. I, I have a Peloton now. Um, oh. so I work out a lot. Um, but yes, I, I if I wasn't doing any exercise at all, I have to exercise for my yes. mental health. Um, yes. And yeah, so if I wasn't doing anything, I would, I would be in the, in, in the doldrums. Um, but yeah, you can Peloton with the kids on the floor. You exactly. With the kids on the floor. I understand. Right. No, it's, it's a triage. So I run at five and, okay, um, yeah. and think about the, actually, I, I don't think about the work, but the work just shows up out there. Um, I'm very slow, um, <laughs> but, but I, I, I envy you the 5am. I, I couldn't give up that slot. Um, it has to do with heat and coyotes and all sorts of things, but I, I envy you getting it done early. And you said that you feel better. On I do. Days. Absolutely. I, I don't spend the day thinking, you know, you have to leave me alone. You have to leave me alone. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, the interiority has to be preserved in some way in order yes. to be attentive to them later on. And they don't understand why sometimes I am so short. Right. You know, and if I say mommy hasn't done her writing today, I mean, I want to slap myself. Like, <laughs> like, come on, you know, that's your job. Own your shit. Like you had children, you know, it's not their fault. Um, but, but I, that rhythm is so, so, so important. It is. It is. And I will say my mom wrote 
all throughout us growing up, she wrote a novel and poems and the memoir and stuff. And I, and I loved that. I loved seeing her do that. And so I, I like, I want my children to see, to see you me practicing, you know, this is what my husband says. My husband says, I don't want them to have a mom who's always available to them. I want them to have a mom who is deep in her own life. Yes. And I was like, huh? Okay. But yes. who's going to, who's going to make them lunch? <laughs> yeah. I'm, well, there's I'm, that I'm, too. Like, if I'm deep in my own life, do they, <laughs> do they make their own chicken nuggets? And the answer is yes, actually. And about it, like the answer is a large Costco box of Z bars is the answer. Because, oh my gosh. I just bought those for my right? oldest kid. <laughs> because yes. a, a child can go like six weeks on Z bars. <laughs> Mars and orange juice, I'm telling you. So, um, but I, you know, my, my mom, but for a slight shift of fate would have been a writer as it is. She's a priest and she's always labored over her sermons and been widely lauded for them. Um, I do think that daughters who are adjacent to writer mothers is a, is a really interesting thing. And I don't often hear as benevolent a memory as you have about your mom doing her work. And that is really wonderful. I think. Yeah, I think I, I still, I mean, like I was upset. Like, I just wanted to know everything about her and I, and I still to this day have her yearbooks. I mean, she's still alive. She's fine. But, but in the past, you know, I just, I really just watched her like a hawk and wanted, you know, to know everything about her. So can you write about that? Can you think so? (laughs) I wrote, I wrote this essay about going to the mall. It was going to be in this anthology that got curbed. Um, and I sent it to her cause I thought it was like full of like good memories. And she wrote yeah. back and she was like, well, I'm just really sorry that you guys, you know, feel this way. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> well, that's okay. So that's very kind actually. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. I mean, to say I'm sorry, rather than I'm contacting my attorneys. Is no, it, no. Well, I like, didn't get published. Maybe she would have. <laughs> Maybe she would have. That's yeah. right. No, that's she, right. Um, no. I know from eat only when you're hungry that you can write characters who are, um, who are living exceptional lives with great diligence, right? And, like, and great passion and, and, and real truth, right? A, a very true commitment to the, to the great fantabulous lie. Um, I just think, I, I, would, I think that would be such an interesting thing to try to think through. On the yeah, page. yeah. One day, one day I'll get, I'll get to that story. Yeah. I feel like I've beat up on her enough in, in real life. <laughs> right. Oh, well, fiction. I mean, I, I think at this point we take the hard turn, right? Yes, into, totally. Into the, I have no idea who this woman is. But right. Exactly. She just came to do, me do, do, do. On, the, on the Peloton. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lots of good ideas on the Peloton. It's true. It's true. Well, are you reading anything good right now? Um, I am. I am in the middle of, uh, is it Dana Spiota? Is that how she pronounces her oh, last name? You know, I think so. I have never read her, but I, I really want to read this new one. Way, way word. So, so this is, this is the, the category of, you know, super genius woman writer that mm-hmm. I have failed to read for the last mm. 20 years. And there are, there are so many writers like that, um, male and female. And so I'm in the middle of Wayward, which is, uncomfortably close to where I am in my life, just in the biological, grand biological order Mm -hmm. of things and Mm -hmm. the failure of estrogen. So Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm riveted by narratives that take that seriously uh, rather than as a joke. 
or a punchline that consider that there is in fact a transition worth acknowledging the same way we're all about coming of age, right? Yes. I, I see no reason why this shouldn't also be uh, an extraordinary journey. And, um, and I loved moving through this time with friends of mine who are childless by choice for whom fertility was, they're like, oh, thank God. Because that's too simple a way to frame the loss. That's not right. actually right. right. About, so, um, and I, I just finished a memoir called Aftershocks by Nadia Owusu, okay. who is um, a, her father was Guinean. Her mother uh, is Armenian, Armer American. She was raised all over the world because her father worked for the UN. She lives in Brooklyn now. Um, and she, her debut book is this memoir, Aftershocks, that was out, uh, I think in January or February of this year. And it is absolutely remarkable and mm. beautiful. Um, and I keep thinking about it um, just as a, as a tiny thumbnail pitch for it. She is aware that as a result of all the losses of her life, she's going to have something like a breakdown. She's afraid it's going to make her mad, mm. insane. She's walking home in Brooklyn and she sees a blue rocking chair out on the sidewalk, a really nice blue rocking chair. You know, people leave furniture everywhere in New York City. Right. So she hauls this thing home to her walk-up apartment. Her roommate checks it for bed bugs and then permits it in the door. <laughs> and she gets in the blue chair and she says, here it comes. Oh my God. And she rocks for seven days. And what? Yes. And within the rocking first is the backstory. So just it's technical genius, but then she creates for herself a council of mothers and they are <gasps> writers they are writers that she's reading in her chair in Brooklyn and it is so beautiful so that's aftershocks and between that and Dana Spiota I feel like I'm in the hands of these extraordinary women and I'm very grateful I I really want to read I really want to read something from the point of view of a perimenopausal or a menopausal woman who has small children because that is our generation, right? Like we are not going through menopause with our kids grown like my mom did. That's you know, right. we yeah. have small children and, and it's not that, it's like you said, it's not that menopause robs you of your fertility and whatever, it's the death of that. It's, it's more than that. But there is this thing where you're like still in this, I don't know, like in this youth, I guess, because you have these small children, but there's also this other thing happening to your brain and your brain chemistry and your body. Well, that, that is moving you in a direction away from the kind of attention yes. that I think small children require. I mean, I had my littlest when I was 40. Yeah. Uh, you know, they treated me at the hospital like I was a bomb, you know? Oh, <laughs> like, totally. Like, how are you yes. now? How are you now? You know? Yes. And, um, and so one isn't certain if it's perimenopause or that you're still weaning, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really bananas what's mm -hmm. going on in the body. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, I, do, I do find that my brain is changing in ways that I, I thought it was limited to the body. It's not. I mean, it, it, if, you, if you told me that plastic, plasticity was on the move, I would believe you. Right. I, yeah. I, I really. So I, I mean, Dana Spiota's daughter, I shouldn't say her character's daughter, um, Sam's daughter, Allie in the book is 17. And so the crisis she sets up is that her daughter is leaving for college at exactly the moment that everything else falls apart wow. for her, oh which God. of course is, you know, is its own special brand of bullshit, you know, but I, I, I find myself 
you know, at kindergarten drop off and I'm 10 years older yeah. and to the other moms and they say, oh, you're a writer. What's your book about? And I'm like, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to, how are you? How are you guys doing? And I'm just like, it's a campus a, book. It's, it's, it's about yeah, a campus. It's about <laughs> schools, yeah. actually. No, um, both my books are about schools. We'll just leave it yeah. there. So, yeah. so I, I, I mean, I think maybe you ought to write that book. That's okay. Yes. Okay. I accept. I yeah. accept after I finish Good. this thing. Yes. Good. I want, I want to write that book. Well, I will be, I will be here to read it for sure. And me the same for you. Thank you. I'm a writer, but is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yeah. Yeah.